pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much once again for this morning and the many different ways that we're reminded about the great forgiveness and, and the great restoration that comes to us uh, at a great cost to you as you've given your unique son for us so that we might know what it means to have life, genuine life, life that is with significance and life that honors you and life that is abundant. Uh, Lord, help us to learn more about the greatness of our Savior today so that we might respond appropriately and think rightly and live for your glory in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Use your Holy Spirit, use your word to conform our thinking into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5 with me. We're studying the gospel according to Luke, the good news about Jesus according to Luke, and we're in the fifth chapter this morning. The key word for today is going to be extraordinary, or extraordinary, if you would like to say it that way. The extraordinary nature of Jesus. It's one of my very favorite ways to describe Jesus. Uh, He's not an ordinary human being. He's extraordinary. And that word is actually used in our text this morning, and it'll give us a great framework for thinking about Jesus appropriately. He is extraordinary when it comes to showing compassion in our passage. He's extraordinary when it comes to authority and power. He's no mere human being. He's extraordinary in that he has the power to forgive And so as we come face to face with the extraordinary nature of Jesus today, I trust that it will cause us to worship, it will cause us to trust Him, because as the extraordinary Savior, He's worthy of our trust, and He's worthy of our worship. And so this morning what we'll do is we'll look at two different healing accounts where we see the extraordinary nature of Jesus, and we'll do this in Luke 5, verses 12 to 26. And we're going to jump right in looking at the first healing account where he heals a leper. So if you look with me at verse 12, we'll be good to go. While he was in one of the cities, that's he's still up north in the Galilean region, so he's in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy, full of contagious skin disease. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I tried to read it the right way. I probably far undersold it. Because if this man has leprosy, he's a social outcast, he's physically hurting, he can't participate in the ordinary events of his culture, he's set apart from his family, he can't worship like other believers do if this man is a believer. This guy is miserable in a way that no one in this room is miserable. And you might be miserable. But if you're in this room with other people, you are not miserable like this guy is miserable because he wouldn't be allowed physically hurting, emotionally hurting, social outcast, because he has to be, and he has heard, or maybe seen from afar, that there is this prophet who's more than a prophet. There's this unique one who's extraordinary when it comes to power, and he has healed people. And so what do you do? 
You want to come to Him as close as you can get and you, with all the passion you can muster, plead with Him to help you. That's what He's doing here. He's pleading with Jesus to help Him. Just listen to what the Old Testament law said about Lepers, Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. This describes this man. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Why? Well, surely so you could know that there's something wrong with that guy. Stay away. Or something wrong with that gal. Stay away from them. And let the hair of his head hang loose. So they're, they're unkept. Again, as a sign to the rest of us. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. So if you see this strange looking person and they see that you see them and you might be getting anywhere close, it's their moral obligation before God to make it known to you that they are unclean. So who knows for how many years this guy's been doing this and whenever he sees people who he'd long to spend time with, he's got to identify himself. It's that awful bad word. Unclean, unclean. Leviticus goes on to say, He shall remain unclean. It's that word again. As long as he has the disease, he is is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Ostracized, separate, different, lonely. Unclean. And then... Verse 13 goes on to say in Luke 5, And Jesus stretched out his hand. Uh-oh. He stretched, stretched out his hand and, and touched him saying, I will be clean. How about that? His whole life it's been unclean, unclean. Everybody says he's unclean. He has to say he's unclean. And Jesus touches him and says, Clean. Who knows when the last time was anybody touched him? Besides maybe a fellow leper. Verse 13 then says, And immediately the leprosy left him. It's extraordinary. Think about Dr. Luke. And we call him Dr. Luke who's recording this because Colossians 3 describes him as a physician. Think about how how extraordinary it would seem to Dr. Luke recording these things. Doctors don't do this. And as the gospel accounts, not just Luke, but other ones, oftentimes describe Jesus' miracles, he uses the word immediately. We'll see it again. Immediately. Making sure we understand this isn't some kind of, you know, uh, in a dark alley, some guy who had some kind of hocus-pocus thing going on, had some special medicine or whatever. Jesus touches him and says, I will. And that was kind of a bad snap. Still can't do it. I've got to stop. It's not mic'd anyway. We're meant to see him as extraordinary, different, unlike anybody and unlike everybody. He is different. Not only in his power, but think about the compassion. Then verse 14 says, and and, and he charged him, Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. why Why does Jesus say that? Well, Jesus says that for multiple reasons, as a proof. So there's outside 
you know, corroborating evidence. There, there's objective uh, witness that this is real and this isn't something that's uh, um, psychological. And the priest sort of had to function like the public health inspector. They're the ones who, who would read the law and say, yep, he, he's okay. He didn't make this up in his own mind. So it's verifiable. But it's also interesting that Jesus does this because Jesus is not turning his nose up at the law of God, sometimes called the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Jesus didn't show up to turn his nose up at the law. Jesus, as we learn elsewhere, came to fulfill the law. He's not going to violate the law. So, so while, while he just touched a leper, which is really complicated, because how do you do that without violating the law? Well, you do that by healing them, <laughs> and then there's no violation. It's complicated, but it's amazing because there's no category for it. But to make things clear, Jesus then tells the man, obey the law. Obey the law. Do what the law says. Do the right thing. He's honoring his father. Jesus is. It's intriguing. Verse 15 then says, but, but now even more. Now even more the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Before we move on to the next healing account, I want to pose the question to you regarding verse 16. And that's why. Why would Jesus, in the midst of this healing, and the buzz is out, and and people are coming, and people need help, because there are lots of people with lots of infirmities, because we do live in a broken world, and and so everybody wants to come to Jesus. And why, why would Jesus... Turn his back, withdraw, and go and pray. Now, some of you are right on target and you're saying, well, he would do that because he wanted to honor his father. I mean, he, he's honoring his father by praying. He, he's talking to his heavenly father and, and, and this would make sense. And I say to you, if that's your response, good job. That's right. Not only that, some of you are thinking, well, he is fully human, and we have to remember that, and so as a human being, it's right to honor the creator of heaven and earth, and, and it's only right to, to express dependence upon him, and, and so he's doing that, that's the right thing, that would be the right thing for everybody to do. And I say, if that's your response, good job. I'm trying to think through those issues. But let's maybe suggest an additional reason why he withdraws to pray. It wasn't because everybody was healed on planet Earth. I would suggest to you he withdraws to pray because his primary objective when he was on Earth was not to heal everybody. And if we think his primary objective was to make everybody healthy and happy, we're going to be confused in this world that we live in, and we're going to be confused when we read the Gospel accounts. Why did he come to heal? He came to heal so that everybody would be healthy? No, he didn't make everybody healthy. He didn't heal everybody in Israel. In fact, he's going to go on to heal people after this. He didn't, after he covered the territory in the Middle East, get on a boat and go to North America, just make sure everybody's covered. Ultimately, that's not why Jesus is here. So the question then comes, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, 
Why is he healing? He's healing to show his power. He's healing to show his authority. But ultimately, he's doing this to give a taste, to give a a foretaste, to give a preview of coming attractions. Because he will go on from here. He will go to the cross to atone for sins. He will then rise again from the dead bodily. Get this. So that everyone who would ever believe in him would experience not just temporary healing. This leper died and had a funeral. But so that everyone who would ever believe in him would have permanent, lasting, resurrected bodies healing. And he's showing in these healing accounts that he can do it. That he is the healer. He's the restorer. And so when I read through the gospel accounts and say, wow, Jesus healed this leper. Wow, Jesus cast out this demon. Wow, Jesus healed this person, the paralytic or whatever it might be. I say, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is unique. He's extraordinary. But ultimately, Jesus is going to turn his back and not just do temporary healings so that he can go to the cross and die himself, ultimate infirmity so that he can ultimately rise from the dead, so that he can give new life, new physical bodies that will never wear out to everyone who would ever believe in him. So I can read the gospel account, you can read the gospel account, not being selfish, but saying he's proving that he is the one who can even help me. He's the ultimate healer. I would like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 regarding this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a a theological interpretation, if you will, of our historic narrative. Okay? Because he's going to go to the cross. And this is what we need. This is what you need. This is the time of year where we do resolutions, right? Yeah, you know, I like resolutions. I'm thankful that God gave us the cycles that he did. We can start over and we can plan and and set goals and it's good. We can buy new equipment and then sell it to other people on Craigslist. It's fun. Um, (laughs) It's it's of little profit. The Bible says it's of profit. I'm I'm all about it. But we have to remember that ultimately we need healing. We need new bodies. We need resurrected bodies. And Jesus heals temporarily while he's on earth in anticipation, looking forward to proving that he's going to have the power to bring perfect, lasting healing with resurrected bodies. This is what we really need. 1 Corinthians 15 is so helpful in a lot of ways, but it's helpful in this way, and it'll help us appreciate what Jesus is up to. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So now we're on the other side of the cross. We fast forward things. The first fruits. I have so come to love that word first fruits that means there's more to come that means he's not only the the only one who's going to be resurrected that's talking about all who would believe in him let's keep going the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the first fruits of those who have died verse 21 for as by a man came death 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23 says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming. This is now talking about his second coming when he establishes his kingdom that we're citizens of, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So good. Resurrection, new bodies at his return. But during his first coming and his earthly ministry, he's doing things like healing, showing that he's the king. Showing that there's this inbreaking, this sampling, this taste, this foretaste of what would be ultimate in his coming kingdom. It's exciting. So when I read the gospel narrative, I, I read it as historical narrative, absolutely. But I say my confidence in Jesus is building. Because it's not just pie in the sky. I'm going to do this for you someday. But there's not really a basis for it. Oh yes, his temporary physical healings increase my trust level not to mention what he does which gives my absolute trust level in rising again from the dead as the first fruits this is what you need this is what I need broken world broken bodies and it doesn't end well for any of us we need a Savior, not the kind of Savior you get through your New Year's resolution. Because those kind of Saviors let you down, ultimately. Kind of a funny story. Uh, kind of a funny thing happened to me. A couple of weeks ago, we were, uh, during Christmas break, we, we drove to the West Coast. Uh, it's not really a funny story when you say seven people in a car drove to the West Coast and my wife gets pneumonia on the way. But anyway, that part wasn't funny. But we drive to California and... It's New Year, you know, it's almost the New Year or the New Year, and I want to exercise. I like to do that on vacation. And so we were, I think, nine miles from the ocean. And I thought one morning, I want to go, I'm going to ride my bike to the ocean. That'd be cool. Before everybody wakes up, I'm going to ride down, I'm going to ride back. I might get close to 20 miles in. It'd be a good way to start the day. So I map it out on my GPS, on my phone, where to turn, where to go. It doesn't do me a lot of good because I put it in my shirt, but I've got it in my mind where I need to go, and I, I, Amazingly, I'm pretty successful about getting where I needed to go on my bike. And I get to my almost destination. I think it's my destination. I think it's where it told me to go. Where do I end up? At the cemetery. <laughs> so, and it really struck me as profound. Now, I had to go a little further to actually get to the sea, and that's where I was aiming for. But it, it stuck with me for most of the day. GPS took me to the cemetery. And I was thinking, I was all proud of myself. Cardio, man, riding my bike, and this is awesome, and look at me working out, and I'm in shape, and cemetery. <laughs> you know, go figure. Go figure. The reality is, right, we all have GPS. It's pre-programmed. Cemetery. How many of those people in that graveyard worked on cardio probably some of them but the reality is everybody who works on cardio is going to die cemetery gps pre-programmed have a nice day <laughs> it's not have a nice day because it's a total downer but it puts things in perspective it's reality 
And so what we need is a real Savior. And when we read of these healings, like we're reading of here and now, we see this, this foretaste, this sampling of what Jesus will do that will last because of His lasting resurrection. And so it should impress us with Jesus and say, He's extraordinary, and I can trust in Him the way I would never trust in any other so-called Savior, because He's extraordinary. Trusting in Him. I love these healing accounts, because ultimate healing comes in Christ. Now let's move on to the other healing that we're going to look at this morning. A paralyzed individual, sometimes called a paralytic. Verses 17 will work down through verse 26. First, we're introduced to some, some onlookers, some guests, so to speak. Verse 17 says, On one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Word is out, right? And we know too much. We, we know about Pharisees and we know about scribes, teachers of the law. We know way too much. We're reading that into that. Let, let, let's not do that for a second. Let's just pretend like we don't know that those are the bad guys. Pharisees, experts in the law. They, they, they're supposed to take the Old Testament law and then build traditions, sacred traditions, quote unquote, that will help people not break the law. And then the scribes are like the, the, the legal experts. They're the attorneys. Um, when it comes to the law of God, and they work together to try to make sure people don't break the, the, the law of God. And... But let's cut them a break for a moment and not read into this what we know about them. We know they're bad guys. They're responsible for the people. They're shepherds. The buzz is out. This Jesus guy from Nazareth, 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 I can't even talk. Nazareth, of all places, Nazareth is even worse. That's like the bad part of town where they can't pronounce Nazareth. I know, because that's what it means in Greek. I'm totally, totally making it up. <laughs> They're trying to do their job. They're trying to do their ministry. We need to go check him out. We need to listen to see if what he's saying is true. And so, so far, so good, no harm, no foul. Verse 17 then says, And the power of the Lord was on him, on Jesus, to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Then it says in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven you. We'll get to verse 20 in just a second, but it's not hard to figure out what's happening. Two-story house. Somebody has some wealth. Probably the kind that would be open air on the top based upon what we would know about the day. And so you can't get to Jesus. What are you going to do? You're going to go up on top and you're going to destroy the house to get your friend to Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus commends them for their faith, right? It's not because these guys are the hero of the story. It's not because, oh, wow, these guys are amazing and awesome and great. They were so virtuous. They had faith. The Bible doesn't typically talk about faith as some sort of virtue. 
Faith is dependence that comes from desperation, that comes from seeing the Savior as extraordinary. So the reality is, they're willing to be criticized, they're willing to go to whatever extreme necessary, maybe even committing some sort of crime of destruction of property, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus because they've heard, because they've seen, whatever it might be, they trust that Jesus and only Jesus can help their friend. They have faith, and they're commended for that. And so I won't make too much out of what happened and exactly what it looked like. No doubt it would have been problematic. No doubt it was extreme. And this extreme action by them shows that they're truly seeing Jesus as more than a mere human being. They're seeing him as extraordinary. And that's why verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that's just, in a sense, if I can say it the wrong way, be disrespectful just for effect. That's just a weird response. They didn't come to have their sins forgiven. They came for physical healing. So why does Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? Well, they have faith. They're trusting Jesus to be supernatural, to be powerful, But the right answer to the question is, Jesus knows that there's more going on than meets the eye. Jesus is going to heal him, but he doesn't write here and write yet. He knows who's in the room. As we're going to see, he knows who's in the room. And so he's going to make a profound point. That he's extraordinary, not just to physically help people, but to spiritually help people. Look what it says in verse 21 with me, if you would. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. Now, we have to read into this a little bit based upon what we're going to read. They're questioning inaudibly. They began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is going to call them out on it in a moment. But, but let's, let's again, let's just assume that we don't know a lot and read verse 21 and, and say, are, are they right or are they not right? If Jesus is a mere man, the guy from Nazareth, and you know, we, we, we know his mom and we know his dad and we know they weren't married and he says he can forgive sins. That's blasphemous. Are they right? If he's a mere human being, they're totally right. Blasphemy is a big religious sounding word that essentially means lie. But it's used more technically and and people used it in this way in the first century. To blaspheme God is to promote an untruth about God. It is to lie about God. If you said God doesn't know the future, I'd say that's blasphemous. That's a lie about God. That somehow undermines the character of God. It's something that's not true about God. And here, Jesus says, I forgive your sins. If Jesus is a mere human being, it's blasphemous. That's a lie. That's defaming God because only God can pardon rebels, forgive sin. This makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, God is the sovereign. He's the judge. He's the king. He has laws. It's his law. Sin is lawlessness. First John chapter 3. He could be the only one who can pardon evildoers. 
And here this guy from Nazareth says he can do it. Blasphemy, according to the Old Testament code, is punishable by death. If Jesus is a mere human being, they should take him outside of town and stone him. Leviticus 24, I think it is off the top of my head. These guys are doing their job. They seem to be doing the right thing. Now, nothing is said about their motives, and we can know more about that later, but Jesus needs to be exposed, and he needs to be silenced, and we need to protect our people. I can relate to this as a pastor. If there's a well-known false teacher coming to town... I'm going to want to make it known and somehow, you know, he's such a good false teacher that people think he's actually good. I want to make it known somehow. To, you know what? That, that's not good. Be careful. Watch out. If Jesus is a mere human being, watch out. And we know that he's not based upon what he's going to say. Verse 22 says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, that's extraordinary, by the way. <laughs> He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? You're, you're, you're out of line. You're wrong. You're, you're drawing wrong conclusions. Even though you might have your theology straight, I don't fit your presuppositions because I'm different. Look at verse 23, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. And at first that's baffling. I know if that's baffling your mind, you're going, I, I totally understand. But if you just read it again and think about it, you'll see where Jesus is going. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? He didn't say which is easier to do, which is easier to say. It's easier to say to somebody, I forgive your sins. I've heard it before. I've heard human beings stand up and basically pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Easy to say. Hard to verify. Really hard to verify. But what's complicated and difficult, based upon this verse, is to say, rise and walk. Why? Because you can either verify it objectively right then and right there or not. So Jesus is going to make a point about forgiving, hard to verify, by healing, easy for him to verify because he's going to totally heal the guy right then and there immediately, extraordinarily. Thus and therefore showing, proving, objectifying that he has supernatural power, not just over the physical, but as the divine. That's what he's up to. Verse 24 is what I emboldened in my notes because it's so significant where it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a loaded title, we'll get back to it in just a second, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 25 is going to say immediately he doesn't. Wow. I'm going to prove my point about the spiritual harder thing by doing the physical, for God, easier thing, but harder to verify in front of everybody. 
That's what's happening. It's masterful. Now, we should dig in just a little bit because where he says uh, the Son of Man, sometimes we, 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 we kind of we strike out here. Um, in 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Um, I don't want to spoil your Sunday school lesson or your study Bible or whatever it is, but, but it's way too simplistic to do this. Son of Man, title for humanity. Son of God, title for deity. We should just all repent of that oversimplification. Okay? Um, it seems nice and neat, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. Son of Man, a very popular title used a lot in the Gospel accounts. Son of Man is a title used in the Old Testament for the unique, powerful, eternal Messiah. I'm going to oversimplify just for a second and say I would far prefer saying Son of Man, if we're just going to make it simple, is actually a title for deity. Based upon Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the well-known Son of Man passage. This Son of Man who will come will live forever. That doesn't sound a lot like mere humanity. He is the unique one, the unique restorer, the unique one who will come to earth. He's the unique Messiah. And so here Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and scribes, and he says, I'm going to do this so that you can know that the Son of Man, and they would have understood Son of Man a lot better than we do, loaded messianic title, has power on earth. I'm him, I'm him, I'm him. Power on earth to forgive sins. That is really extraordinary. But it's in line with what the Old Testament said would be the case. 25 says, And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. So that action substantiates, objectifies, supports... That Jesus is not a mere human being. Because he's just done what mere human beings don't do. And so by saying your sins are forgiven, there's actually support that he actually is the one who could do that. He's not a mere human being. Then verse 25 says, 26 says, And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were, were filled with awe, saying, We have seen, here's our word, extraordinary Things today. How about extraordinary? Why? Extraordinary because of the physical healing that they've seen like they've never seen before. Extraordinary because we have come into contact with the one who professes to forgive sins and based upon what he's done physically, it seems like he really could do it. He's extraordinary. And then I want to suggest to you that he might just be more extraordinary than you might be thinking right now. I'm going to take a risk. Some of you are already there. But maybe some of us are going, yeah, extraordinary, physical. He forgives sins. I just want to ratchet it up just a little bit more so that when you leave, you'll say, extraordinary, maybe even beyond what they realized, beyond what I realized before. And I want to do that by suggesting to you 
pretending for a moment that Jesus won't go to the cross. I know he does, but let's just pretend for a moment that he doesn't. I'm going to suggest to you and say to you that forgiveness is an utter and absolute impossibility. It could never happen. God could never, would never forgive anyone. Therefore, Jesus could never say this. He never would say this if he didn't know what was going to happen. Now I realize I got to do some explaining, okay? Because you, we don't think in those terms. We forgiveness is just something we dole out, and we talk about it all the time, whether it's in church or outside of church. And forgiveness is kind of normal. Forgiveness in God's world? Think with me about this. God, the Creator of all that is, is the King. And he says, according to his law, and he has the right to have a law because it's his world. You belong to him. I belong to him. Everything belongs to him. And so he, he's the one and only God and he has a law and he says, let me just boil it down for you. Simplify it. Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me with all that you are all the time. I just have one law. That's it. Does God have the right to do that? Yeah, he's got the right to do that. He not only has the right to do that and that's what he has done, Old and New Testament would verify that. That is what he has done. He also has the right to say, and I'm going to also tell you what um, violation of my law brings. Violation of my law is death. Ultimately spiritual death. The Bible calls it the second death. Revelation chapter 20. So, treat me like I'm God, fully, completely, holy with all that you are, because I am, after all, God. And everything will be great. But if you don't, it's called idolatry, by the way, if you don't, and you listen to that serpent, or others like him, who say, has God said? And then you say, well, I don't know, and I choose to do whatever I want to do. If you do that, you'll die. Where's the place for forgiveness? There's no place for forgiveness. How about this? It would be unjust, unrighteous, unholy, and awful if God forgave anybody. He would be, he'd be worse than the, the most corrupt judge that we've ever read about in the news. Because he's God, he's the one and only God, and he makes a law and he says, here's the consequence, and he's going to say, you know what, I didn't really mean it. He, he would be a liar, he'd be a deceiver. You see, now we're on to something. Now we have a little bit better understanding why First Peter talks about why angels think they need prescription changes in their glasses. <laughs> when angels think about forgiveness... It says, it doesn't say they need prescription changes, but the, the, these, are, these are things in which they long to look. So from heaven, if you can picture, they, they're, they're peering, they're squinting, going, what? Maybe there's something I just can't read here. I, I don't get it. Our God has a law, and He's the Creator and Sovereign, and, and, and they violated His law. And we didn't have forgiveness. 
There's no category for forgiveness. Rebellion brings consequence. You say, why are you belaboring this? Why are you making a big deal out of this? I'm making a big deal out of this because I want you to see that Jesus is even more extraordinary than we might imagine or or, or that these folks might imagine. Because what God does is He provides atonement. Okay? An atonement, the satisfying of God's just law, His justice, His wrath. Through Christ's atonement, the Bible then provides, shows us the basis for forgiveness. I won't hold your violation of my law against you anymore because debt has actually literally been paid. So good. Jesus is more extraordinary than we might imagine. If you would, if you turn back to that Colossians 1 passage, I'll show it to you. In Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Ephesians 1, Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because without the shedding of blood, that's just another way of saying atonement. Without atonement, there could be no forgiveness. But there is atonement, and Christ has provided atonement, so there is forgiveness, and God can uphold His law, and we're just, this is, this is deluxe. This is grand. Back in Colossians 1, oh, 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 I wanted to say one more thing about this. I can't, I can't stand it. Just get worked up about this stuff. Just in case you weren't totally buying my argument before, we'll get there in Luke. We're not going to go there now. But in Jesus' ministry later, he'll say, it's easier for a camel to go through with the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And people say to him, if rich people can't be saved, because that's the point you're making, because you can't thread a needle with a camel, duh. If rich people can't be saved, and they're the ones with the stuff who look like they have the blessing of God, then who could be saved? And Jesus says what? Some of you know your Bibles well. You know that he says, with man it is impossible. Forgiveness is impossible. But then he says, but with God all things are possible, and he's looking forward to atonement. Because if you have atonement, then you can have forgiveness. And an utter impossibility not only becomes a possibility, it becomes a sure reality. Somebody write that down. It came out better from my mouth and my notes. This is so much fun. Colossians chapter 1 says in verse 14, In whom, this is Christ, in whom we believers have redemption. That's another way of saying atonement. The forgiveness of sins. He, it's like an equal sign. He equates the two together. If we have redemption, we have forgiveness. But notice that our forgiveness is tied to redemption and there would be no forgiveness if there wasn't redemption. And if you turn to chapter 2 of Colossians, perhaps you'll see it even more clearly. In Colossians 2.13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, our, our offenses against His law, having forgiven us all our trespasses, keep reading 14, by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands that this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice those two realities worth underlining. Having forgiven us all our trespasses at the end of 13, end of 14, nailing it to the cross. The cross is symbolic, emblematic of the atoning work of Christ. Our key to being forgiven is the reality of blood being shed, substitutionary atonement. You can just jot down Ephesians chapter 1. It's even clearer. I love Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption. Forgiveness. Because of the shedding of His blood. So when you hear Jesus say, this is the new covenant in my blood. You can know he's talking about forgiveness. Absolute, total forgiveness. That God is not counting your violations against his law, which you've committed and I've committed, against you. How can that be? Angels are saying, how in the world can that be? That's not fair. It's not fair. It's gracious and kind and merciful. But actually it is fair because it's just payment made. Sinner forgiven because he is the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God bringing peace through his cross. Peace and forgiveness go hand in hand. Isn't it good? You, you would think that Christians would worship. <laughs> I mean, it just is, a, is, is staggering to the mind. As you read the gospel accounts, just know where it's headed, where Jesus is going, and you'll understand better and more fittingly how he can say such otherwise scandalous things. It's because of what he's going to do. It's because of what he's going to do. And does. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our our wonderful time together as we study the scriptures together and as we find our hearts warmed by, by Christ Jesus and his powerful gospel that he and he alone forgives sinners. It is an amazing reality that we who have offended you in so many different ways can have peace with you, can have the assurance of true peace with you because of the blood of the cross. So we find our delight in Him. And Lord, now as we seek to obey Jesus in response, as we take bread and we take wine, Lord, help us to remember that this this blood was shed for our forgiveness so that we can have confidence in Christ that we indeed are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.